Today, we study the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. I don't know about you, but I find that kind of intriguing. Of all the miracles recorded in the Gospels, interestingly, there's only one, just one, that is recorded in all four of them. And it's this fourth powerful sign that John records in his gospel as the fourth powerful sign that points to who Jesus is. It's that miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. When you think about it, the contrast between the supply and the demand was enormous. And yet Jesus was equal to that issue. Why? Well, that's what I want to explore with you today. How do we see God working in impossible situations? Now let's just pause here and acknowledge how personal this is. What we're talking about today from God's word is far more than theoretical for many of you. You've come here today or you're listening online and you honestly feel like your back is against the wall, don't you? You've got a situation going on in your life. Maybe you've shared it with a few trusted friends or maybe it's something that only you know about and you wonder how you're going to make it, how you're going to get through. Perhaps you feel overwhelmed and you're wondering, how can I deal with all this stress? This is more than just theory. If we grasp today's lesson, and even more important, if we practice it, I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, this is nothing short of revolutionary in our lives. Now, let me say just a word about miracles in general, because as we're in this series, Powerful Signs, and we come to this fourth one, I've heard many people say in the past, you know, Jesus' miracles prove his deity. Perhaps you've said it yourself. Perhaps you've heard some teacher, a popular teacher, say that. Now, I want to be crystal clear. As followers of Jesus Christ, who look to the Bible as our authority, obviously we believe that Jesus is divine. The official Christian teaching is that Jesus had a hypostatic nature, that he was fully God, fully man, and those two natures existed simultaneously in the Lord Jesus Christ as he walked this earth. Fully God, fully man. But I'm suggesting to you that his miracles alone don't prove his deity. Moses performed miracles. He wasn't God. Joshua (coughs) performed miracles. He wasn't God. Elisha performed miracles, and Elijah before him. Peter performed miracles. Philip performed miracles. Paul performed miracles. They weren't God. What we need to understand is that Jesus performed these miraculous signs Not as God, but as a person, as a man filled with the Holy Spirit, fully dependent on God. In fact, if you study John's gospel carefully, this theme just comes through loud and clear. Jesus says, I can do nothing of myself. 
This is explicit in John chapter 5 where we looked last week. He said, you, speaking of us, his disciples, can do nothing without me just as I can do nothing without my Father. And that's the powerful lesson we all need to learn as we learn to trust in the sufficiency of God. I tell you, I cannot emphasize it enough. It is the great breakthrough lesson in Christian living. We learn to trust in the sufficiency of God. So with that as a foundation, let's jump into today's text, John chapter 6. Let's start in verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? Hey, Phil, we got a problem, dude. 5,000 people. Now, some of the other accounts say 5,000 men besides women and children. If that's the case, th that, of course, would mean there's 15, 20,000 people easily. But let's just keep it simple. Let's just talk in terms of 5,000. They've been here all day. They're hungry. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And I love the next verse because it says, he asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. In other words, he, he wasn't looking to Philip here for advice. He was actually testing what Philip had been learning in his discipleship journey. I can imagine Jesus calling Philip up as the crowd is gathering, coming toward him. Hey, Philip, hey, hey man, turn around and look at this crowd. Wow, big crowd, Jesus. Yeah, Phil, 5,000. Wow, I knew it was a lot. I didn't know it was that many. Hey, Philip, they're hungry. So am I, actually. I haven't had much today. Um, they're wondering, Philip, where the food's going to come from. Funny you should mention that, Lord. I was wondering the same thing myself. Philip, how are we going to feed them? How? Think about it. How are we going to do this? And verse 7 says, Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Now with that, we learn that Philip had learned apparently absolutely nothing in his course of discipleship, at least when it comes to the sufficiency of God. Let me put a hypothetical situation to you. Let's suppose that Phil Jesus did not test Philip. Let's suppose he tested an atheist from the audience that day. He said to the crowd, hey, anybody here an atheist? Some guy steps up, says, sir, come on over. Let's chat for a while. Mr. Atheist, would you turn around and look at this crowd? Big, isn't it? Yeah, wow, it's a lot of people. 5,000, wow, 5,000's a lot. Mr. Atheist, they're hungry. So am I, actually. Hey, they're wondering where the food's gonna come from. You know, funny you should mention it. I was wondering the same thing. And then he poses this provocative question. Mr. Atheist, tell me, how are we going to feed them? What do you think the atheist would say? I think he would come to the same conclusion Philip did. We don't have enough. You know what that tells us about Philip and about us? That we can be a professing disciple of Jesus Christ, but a practicing atheist. 
Philip had no resources here the atheists didn't have. The atheist had, factored God, had not factored God into the equation because he didn't believe in God. And Philip, although he believed in God, had also failed to factor God in. Brothers and sisters, it is honestly possible to be a professing follower of Jesus Christ as far as our theology goes and as far as our testimony goes and yet go back to work on Monday morning and live like an atheist. Because we haven't learned how to trust in and tap into the sufficiency of God. Well, one of the other disciples, Andrew, probably realized Philip was in a bit of a pickle here, so he decides to intervene, verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. Now, if it stopped right there, we would kind of be getting excited. Maybe Andrew gets it. Maybe Andrew is living more beyond of what a practical athe or an atheist would live. But then Andrew spoils it with this line. But how far will they go among so many? Andrew's really no better than Philip. Andrew's taken two things in consideration. Huge crowd, very, very minimal supply. And the missing ingredient in Andrew's assessment is the same missing ingredient in Philip's assessment. God. They simply failed to factor God in. Did they believe in God? Of course. But God had effectively become a silent partner in the relationship. And that can happen to us, by the way. By the way, in business, a silent partner is often someone who lends their name, sometimes their influence, along with some capital usually, but they're not actually doing the business. And it's very easy, very easy for us to slip in to that kind of relationship where God becomes a silent partner. Oh, we give lip service to God. If we were filling out a survey somewhere and it asked what our religion was, we'd check Christian or some people might write in follower of Jesus, Christ follower, whatever. And yet when it comes to the day-to-day -day challenges of life, We've reduced God to this workable, manageable human enterprise. We've reduced it all down to that, and God is really not necessary. He becomes a silent partner. Professing disciples, we are practical atheists. Now, lest you think, lest you think we're picking on Philip and Andrew here, I, I want to remind you of what Mark's gospel says, because Again, this miracle is included in all four Gospels, and so the others give us a little interesting insight here that John doesn't include. In Mark 6, verse, uh, chapter 6, it says, By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Now, here's the suggestion. Send the people away. So they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something, buy themselves something to eat. Isn't that interesting? The disciples had apparently formed a committee, had a little meeting, came to a resolution. We're going to go to Jesus and say, this is out of control. 
The demand way outstrips the supply. This is impossible. Jesus, it's getting late. Our backs are against the wall here. Send them away so they can look after themselves. So let's not pick on Philip and Andrew for a moment. All the disciples had factored God out. They assessed the demand. They calculated the supply. We can't match the demand with the limited resources. This is impossible. Now, I want to get very personal, and if this gets under your skin a little bit, I just want to remind you, that's my job to get under your skin. I get paid for that. I get paid to get under your skin. But please know, if I get under your skin with what I'm about to say, I've already gotten under my own skin this week. This has been one of the most challenging lessons of all in John's gospel. Boy, I have wrestled with this and wrestled with this. How am I when it comes to the sufficiency of God day by day in my life. So here's what I want to say to you. If we can explain our Christian life in terms of ourself, we got a problem. If we can explain our Christian life in terms of what we can do and how we can think and how we can plan and how we can accomplish things through our own sense of discipline, then we may have reduced the Christian life to a faint whisper of what it's meant to be. Let me go further since I'm already under your skin, all right? Are we having fun or what? If people can look at this church, Grace Fellowship, and if they can say, oh, it all makes sense, I can explain that, And if they believe that they can explain this church in terms of its leaders, in terms of its personalities, in terms of the congregation and the resources, in terms of the talent or the willpower, or in terms of our availability locally, in terms of our courage or our scholarship or our dedication or our sacrifice, we got a problem. Because that says nothing about the sufficiency of God and our trust in God to go beyond what we can do. And a church that's living like that, trust me, that church will burn itself out very quickly because it's not even trusting in the sufficiency of God. Oh, since I'm already in deep trouble, let me go even deeper. If your unbelieving neighbors and mine If they look at our lives and the only difference as far as there is concerned is that we kind of disappear for a little time on Sunday morning or Saturday evening and we kind of go to this church thing because we've got this religious bent about us and then we come back home, then we probably got a pretty weak witness, honestly. If there's nothing to make our neighbors scratch their head and say, I don't get it. Boy, they've got distinctive, positive values that are wonderful. Why is that? Wow, how do they make it when they face problems just like I do, and yet they're so confident and so calm. They don't stress out and panic like I do. How do they cope so well with this life? Jesus asked Philip the question, not because he needed advice, because he wanted to expose Philip to himself. Philip, you're living like a practical atheist. You've not learned to rely on God yet. And then Jesus does a brilliant thing. 
He was brilliant at using sort of object lessons from the situation. Uh, you remember that once when Jesus, our uh, disciples were arguing about who was greatest in the kingdom. You remember what Jesus did at that moment? He called a child there. He set him in the midst of them. And he said, unless you change and become like a little child, you're not going to see the kingdom. What did he mean? I believe Jesus meant unless you become like a little child in dependence, in trust, in expectancy, you're just not going to be living this kingdom reality. By the way, one of the reasons that I get excited about what God is doing in our midst is I look at some of our young people. And I see some young people that are filled with faith. And by the way, I'd, I concluded years ago that if you can get a young person, when they're really young, they're fired up for God, and just get them on the right path, you've really, really got something special there. That's why Paul wrote, by the way, in 1 Timothy 4, to young Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Show me a young person who's fired up and is trusting like a child even in the sufficiency of God and is dependent on God. You get them started down that path early, it's amazing what can happen. Because you see, if you let them go long enough, they usually start living like most adults. Very predictable, blasé lives. I saw it in myself. I shared this story at least once some years ago, so some of you have heard it. But I had an experience as a 15-year-old teenager growing up in Tennessee that I think kind of illustrates the dependence I had on God at that time. As a 15-year-old, I'd been a follower of Jesus for less than two years. Grew up on a farm. We had a lot of cattle we had a cow that while she was giving birth to her calf, got into the creek. It was kind of a little flood that happened and the calf drowned. And by the time we found the cow far down into the woods on our property, far down into the woods, she was almost dead. Literally stretched out as a cow does just before she's about to pass. My father who was an experienced, seasoned cattleman himself, brought over our neighbor, Herschel Hester. Herschel was the cattle expert in the county. He had a lot of cattle himself, and he was commonly recognized through all of his experience. He was a seasoned veteran with cattle. He was acknowledged as kind of the medical expert in the area. He really had a lot of knowledge about cattle. And both of them stood there along with me, a 15-year-old kid, looked at this cow, and both of them said, she's gone. Might as well call the tank truck to take her body away. It's only a matter of She's dead. Nothing's going to help. And I said, well, can't we do something? And uh, both of them kind of looked at me and said, there's honestly nothing we can do to help this cow. No medicine, nothing will help her. So on the way home, I said to my father, Herschel went back to his house that direction. We went back to our house about a mile away. And I, I said, 
to my father, silly optimism of a 15-year-old, Dad, if I can get her to live, can I have her? Ooh. He almost disdainfully said, she's not going to live. We, we're going to call the tankage truck right now to come and get her body. She'll be dead within an hour. I said, yeah, well, maybe so. But if I can get her to live, can I have her? And he just kind of nodded. Well, I went back down, and I took a bottle that I'd raised a couple of calves on, and I began to squirt some water in her mouth, and I found that she was thirsty and really wanted to drink. And so I kept trying that, but she couldn't even raise up. And then I went up to the field and began to cut some clover up there in a bucket and cut and cut and cut some grass and brought it down, but she was too tired to even eat. But I went back a little later, and finally she wanted more water, but she nibbled on a little grass. And a little bit later she could actually sit up a little bit, and I got a bucket and brought water to her, and she drank some water. But I thought she'll probably be dead by the morning. But I did a silly thing. 15 years old, been a follower of Jesus less than two years. I prayed over this cow. Now, I'd be too sophisticated today to pray over a cow. You know what I mean? I mean, who's going to pray over a cow? But I'm filled with faith. I'm just like this kid that Paul is writing to in 1 Timothy. I'm an example of faith at this point. I'm dependent on God. I believe God is awesome. I believe God can do anything. And so even though the experts say there's no chance... I'm saying, God, raise this cow up. I'm praying for this cow. Can you believe it? And so every morning I go down before school, school's early, to catch the bus at 7. I cut grass, I bring her water, and she's finally sitting up a little bit, eating some grass. I go back as soon as I get home from school, cut more grass, bring more water. Long story short, three weeks and five days later, after a lot of prayer and laying on of hands, after all the experts sit saying all the way through, she's not going to make it. She's going to be crippled all of her life. She never stood during that whole time. This cow stood up and walked up to the pasture above and began to graze normally. And she, after that, lived many more years and bore a lot more calves. You know, it's sad when people get too sophisticated to pray for a cow. And it's sad, brothers and sisters, when we can be professing disciples and yet live like practical atheists day by day, and we just don't factor God in. I think this boy insisted that Andrew take him to Jesus because Andrew is apologetic. But what are these among so many? But this lad, having only five barley loaves and two fish, that would hardly make a good sandwich for you and me. The fish were probably barely larger than sardines. He knew something the others had missed. He knew it doesn't matter how much you've got. The important thing is are you willing to put it in God's hands and entrust him with it? Hey, listen, can I tell you why some of you never go anywhere with God honestly? We're just talking plain language now. It's because you look at yourself and you go, I don't have enough. Do you know why some of you never get involved in Christian service? Because you look at your talents, you go, there's not enough to make any difference. And you just don't do anything. You know why some of you never go on a mission trip, even a short-term mission trip to Uganda or Haiti or Guatemala because you assess the situation and you look at the demand and you look at all the needs and you go, I just don't have enough. 
And you spend time wishing you had more. And you say to God, if I were only more gifted, you could use me. If I only had better abilities, if I only had a better background, maybe God could do something with me. I literally talked to a man several months ago, and the conversation was about his spiritual growth. And I said, sir, what is the greatest hindrance to your spiritual growth? And he said, my wife. How convenient. Then, sir, give your wife to Jesus. Give your marriage to Jesus. By the way, she's probably saying the same thing about him. Just give the Lord what you've got as inadequate as it is. Oh, God, I wish I could earn more money. Then I could really give to the work of God. Well, what about what you've got? You say it won't make any difference. Well, in your hands, it certainly won't. But if you just put it in God's hands, see what he can do with it. You see, the lesson is God works over and over again out of human deficiency. That's all he's got to work with because we're deficient always. The question is, are we willing to bring what we have to him? The key to really beginning to grow in God is to recognize that no matter what situation I'm in, no matter what temptations I'm coping with, no matter what hostile environment I find myself in, I need to trust in the sufficiency of God to be adequate, even when I feel like my back is against the wall. So, what does Jesus do with these loaves and fish? You're about to get the how here. Here's the big how coming. This is how it happens. There's a secret here, and you've got to watch very closely, or it'll go right by you, and you'll miss it. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. By the way, you know, we've been saying that there's always a command that you have to obey in order to unleash the power of God. And this is one of a number of commands that he gives in this story. Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks... And distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And then verse 12 says, When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. How did that happen? What just happened there? What Jesus did is so simple and yet so accessible to every single Christian we often miss it I put the words in bold on the screen to help us he gave thanks now when it says he gave thanks that doesn't mean he said the blessing like many of us do before the meal for what we are about to receive may the Lord make us truly thankful amen for what we are about to receive may the Lord make us truly thankful amen well that's good to do But when it says he gave thanks, the key there is that he was reckoning on the sufficiency of his father. That's what giving thanks is all about. Five little loaves, two fish, 5,000 people. Thank you. Thank you that you are sufficient for this impossible situation. Now, Pastor Rex, why do you say that that is the key to this? Well, I believe John gives us a clue a little bit later in the chapter in verse 23. 
Because later in verse 23, when he had sent the disciples out across the lake, the people have now dispersed. This is a day or two later, and John writes the following. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Now, I find that very interesting. If I were John writing this gospel, I would have written that very differently. I would have said, some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where Jesus had blown their stinking minds with an unbelievable miracle. I would have said, no, the boats landed near the place where the people had totally changed their paradigm because of the miraculous work of God. That's what I would have written. But no, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says they landed near the place where he had given thanks. Why did John say that? Because John gets it. That's the key. So simple, so easily missed. It acknowledges our dependence on God. If I open a door for you and you walk through, you say thank you. What are you saying? You've done something for me. If I have a heavy box and you lift it, I say thank you to you. Why? Because you've done something for me. And what Jesus does here is what he taught earlier in chapter 5. He transfers the responsibilities from himself to his father. Father, this is not my business. I can do nothing by myself. He's acknowledging his total dependence on the father. He does that through giving thanks. By the way, brothers and sisters, do you know that the Bible repeatedly instructs us to do that in every situation? Look at just a few verses that I wrote down here. 1 Thessalonians 5, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything. Acknowledge, God, you're sufficient for this, and the good and the bad and the big and the little acknowledge that he's sufficient. Or how about Ephesians? Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. It, it just becomes a part of our disposition. And by the way, that is written in the context of human relationships, particularly marriage. God, you're, you're sufficient. You're sufficient. The very next verse says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You're sufficient for all of this marriage stuff that we're going through. You're sufficient. Or consider Colossians chapter 3. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Here it is again. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. It becomes an attitude, a disposition where we say, God, we're not sufficient. I don't have enough. If this is all about me and what I can do, forget it. But I thank you that you are not only sufficient, but more than sufficient to meet this need. Or consider Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, here it is, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And that thing that's pressing you, friend, where you feel so stressed out, where you feel like, I can hardly breathe here, I have no peace, can you today come to the point where you can just say, Father, thank you. I, I don't have enough. I don't have enough patience. 
I don't have enough insight. I, I, I don't have enough goodness. I don't have enough kindness. I don't have enough long-suffering. I don't have enough of what I need. But thank you that you do and that you're, you're sufficient for this. And the Bible says when we live that way, get this verse, Verse 7 of Philippians 4, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding. When we live that way with thanksgiving to God, relying on him, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here's my point. Don't miss the point. All throughout the Bible, New Testament and Old Testament, we're instructed to give thanks. Think about the book of Psalms and what it says. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And one of the signs, by the way, one of the signs of people who are not living with that kind of dependence on God, the kind of dependence that says, thank you, that while I'm utterly deficient here, you are super sufficient for all this. One of the signs of that is that we stop giving thanks. Consider Romans chapter 1. It describes a people who'd begun to live that way in their own strength, edging God out. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God. And what was a characteristic of a life lived apart from God? Nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Let me ask you Are you finding this life of discipleship something where you're in over your head? If you're not, I'm not sure you're in the discipleship school. Every true disciple comes to the point where they realize, I'm in over my head here. I don't have enough. But he does. And you learn to thank him and rely on him. Let me point out just one thing as we move toward our close here that I find very intriguing. Do you know that Jesus never once said, Please to his father. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. Follow me here. He never once said please. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean he did not seek to please his father. In fact, that was his express desire. John 5, 30, I seek not to please myself, Jesus said, but him who sent me. But he never said, please, please. Did you know that Paul, the apostle Paul, this giant of faith, In all of his letters, which he included prayers in these letters, most of them, and he never once said please to God. Did you know that? Kind of weird, isn't it? But he always, in these prayers, said thank you. Did you know that in the Psalms, never once does the psalmist say to God, please? But he repeatedly says thank you. Why is that? Because please is the pleading language of a beggar. It's the language of uncertainty, almost of panic sometimes. Thank you is the quiet confidence of faith. Thank you, God, that you are 
sufficient. And my life and my times are in your hands. As we thank him, we're acknowledging that. And we're not unduly gripped by fear. We're not unduly panicked or stressed because we're learning to trust in him. In all four of the accounts, by the way, of Jesus feeding the 5,000, he gave thanks. In the account of Jesus feeding the 4,000, he gave thanks. In a couple of weeks, we're going <coughs> to study the event where Jesus stood before the loom, tomb of Lazarus, his friend, who'd been dead for four days. His body was already decomposing. And Jesus said, Father, I thank you that you hear me. So here's the bottom line. I'm going to get real personal. What are you facing in your life right now, big or small? Are you learning to give thanks in your marriage, in your home life, in your parenting? Are you learning to give thanks in your work life, in your business life, Monday through Friday, in our church life, in your relationships with extremely difficult people? Are you learning to say, thank you, God, I don't have enough for this, but you're sufficient. In your relationships with wonderful, pleasant people that you adore and love, are you saying thanks? What are you losing sleep over these days? Here's my final question. Can you bring whatever that is and put it into his hands and say, Lord, I give this to you. I put it into your capable hands and I rest my head back on the pillow of your providence and I go to sleep in peace. Thank you. Father, teach us to be that kind of disciples not those who profess you in our theology and our testimony, but in our practice live like practical atheists. Help us to learn this lesson that you are all sufficient and we are not. So thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like to invite the ushers to come forward as we get ready to receive our tithes and offerings. I also want to invite any of you 